This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast. A 2-0 weekend for the Buffalo Bandits sees them vault to the top of the NLL East. The jump has replaced the dive as the most effective way to beat goaltenders near the crease. The commissioner was on Sports Business Radio this week. We'll let you hear some of the tidbits from that interview. And at the halfway poll, I'll give you my midseason award. All that and more on OTCB. What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast here on SoundCloud and NLL Radio. My name is Teddy Jenner. Thank you for stopping by. As always, Bear and I are glad you tuned in as we make lacrosse radio magic here at the Q Zone Control in downtown Victoria. A chilly day on the island. So cold that the golf courses were closed this weekend. Now, I know you people in Ontario are probably cursing my name because I'm talking about the golf courses being frozen, but that's just part of the charm of living out here on the island. Unfortunately for Victoria Shamrock fans, Corey Small will no longer be an attraction on the island. We'll get to that and some other news of the week as this show carries on. As always, if you want to be interactive with the show, you can email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at off the crossbar. Um, some other topics I have written down about things we may discuss, early challenges, the rush's killer instinct, where have the crowds gone, and of course, the Western Lacrosse Association draft that went last week. No surprise, Connor Robinson went first. The two predictions that I had came true. Connor Robinson went first to Langley. And Cole Pickup went fourth to Victoria. Now, at the time, I had forgotten that Nanaimo picked third. And when I realized that, I thought that that might throw a wrench into things. And then Coquitlam at number two threw a wrench into a lot of things. And that kind of switched up the draft. So we'll talk WLA draft a little bit later on the show. But let's get to some NLL stuff. Uh, it was a very, very busy weekend in the end this past week. Six games on the docket, one Friday, one Sunday, four on Saturday, and it all started with Buffalo in New England, and raise your hand if you saw Buffalo beating the Black Wolves by five. Nobody? Nobody. Oh, David Brock, figures. Yes, the Buffalo Bandits went in and knocked off the New England Black Wolves, 18-13. And the Black Wolves have now lost two in a row, while the Bandits, at the time, had now won three in a row. And their offense was looking silky smooth. They had everything going for them. And when I say everything, I, I truly do mean it. They just continue to surprise. And they've come a long way. Since the early start of the year, and you can ask Steve Dietrich that, you know, and he'll tell you, they weren't playing very well when the season kicked off. And things have just slowly and nicely started to turn around for them. And they were in a bit of a dogfight early against the Black Wolves, 8 6 at half, but they were able to find another gear. And while they gave nine goals up, 
to Sean Evans and Kevin Crowley combined, the rest of the team only scored four. And you have to be extremely happy with your defense when you can limit it to two guys on one side of the floor. And on the other side of the floor, we're starting to see the emergence of Josh Byrne. He was the number one overall pick. And he was absolutely fantastic on Friday night. Three goals, two assists, continuing to pad his lead in rookie scoring. And then the next night, after Buffalo beats up on New England, they hop on a sleeper bus, drive the eight hours from from Uncasville to Buffalo, get in at who knows what time, try and get some food, some liquids, Find a sleep if you can. And then they took the floor on Saturday night against the defending champs, the Georgia Swarm, who were starting to find their groove, had gotten back to 500. And people were starting to think, okay, maybe the Swarm have turned a corner. Well, two weeks ago, they were the fresh team waiting for the Vancouver Stealth. This week, they were the fresh team waiting for the Buffalo Bandits, and things didn't exactly go according to plan for all of those Georgia Swarm fans. And it wasn't a good weekend for the Georgia Swarm, period, as they did the exact opposite of what Buffalo did, and they lost two games over the weekend. But for Buffalo, what's more impressive is the fact that they went through a nail-biter of a game against New England the night before, traveled on a sleeper bus, probably didn't get a lot of sleep. And then they hang 18. 18 on Georgia. And you get another six points from Josh Byrne. This kid is a stud. And there is a reason he was the consensus number one overall pick by the Buffalo Bandits. And he is starting to show why he has become such a dangerous scorer. More impressive is his athletic ability. And it's funny to watch the opposites that are exactly like, and the only real opposite other than age is the hands between Josh Byrne and Callum Crawford. And I truly believe that Josh Byrne has learned a lot watching Callum Crawford in Buffalo, probably some game film as well from years past. But I remember thinking to myself last year and the years before when Callum Crawford was starting to do the jump. He would get underneath or get topside right along the crease, and he would jump and go vertical instead of horizontal to the ground. Dan Dawson does this extremely well, too. Tall, athletic guys have this crazy range that when they jump up, they create more of a scoring opportunity for for themselves because goaltenders have no idea what to do. And making it even harder is now players are starting to find this crazy ability to 
go cross-handed and pull the ball back short side once a goaltender is either committed far side or on his toes. And Josh Byrne is learning that skill really well. Callum Crawford has been doing that for a few years, so I think Callum's probably instilling some knowledge on the young Byrne. But Byrne continually got ISOed with Georgia defenders, and they never seemed to have backside help. And every time that happened, he took advantage. And he would get underneath, and he'd be one-on-one with Mikey Poulin or later in the game against Warren Hill, and there was nothing either goaltender could do. And then, when the ball was moving hot for Buffalo, it was just too easy. On the side, Callum Crawford, now Dane Smith, feet pass over to Mitch Jones, back in front, score! Josh burning down the house. <laughs> Tic-tac-toe, John. There's a lot of quick ball movement. There's a pick and roll. It goes to one side. It gets to the other with Dane Smith. He goes cross field to Jones, who finds a streaking airborne. And Warren Hill can't get there. That's just too fast, too quick. That's John Gertler and Randy Mearns trying to outdo each other with bad burn puns. Just kidding, guys. Well done. But ball movement creates beautiful offense. And when you look at the top teams in the National Lacrosse League, the teams that move the ball east to west and then diagonals run the whole quote-unquote nation's offense of high ball swings, off ball picks. It is incredibly beautiful to watch. Much like when there are set plays in football or orchestrated offensive sets in basketball. When something is worked to perfection, it just looks so good. And it's one of the things that makes the Saskatchewan offense so good. It's the one thing that really made the Georgia offense so good last year. Maybe Jordan Hall helped Georgia because for some reason that offense isn't anything close to what it used to be. It is a shock that that offense is struggling the way it is. And you can't say that they took a step down by adding Jesse King in for Jordan Hall, but something's not right out that front door. I don't know what it is, but something is definitely not right out that front door. But to Buffalo, and to offenses moving the ball, and Buffalo has found it. They have found that je ne sais quoi. It's what Saskatchewan has. It's what, at times, Toronto, Calgary, Colorado have. New England has shown signs of it. But when you just pack the ball and guys try to go one-on-one or you're just working on the same side of the floor and it never swings east to west, or if it does, it's just once. It's too easy for defenses. And then you get, and when there's no ball movement, you get the hounds of justice And the beasts on the back end just roving for double teams. And when you have a stagnant offense going up against an aggressive, physical, chasing defense, the offense 
doesn't stand a chance. Case in point, what Saskatchewan did to Vancouver on Saturday night. Vancouver has a talented offense, but they don't move the ball east to west. It stays on one side, and it's just picks and rolls, re-picks, and that allows defenses to slide help, to double the ball, to chase, and to cause turnovers. But when you don't let the defense get set because you're moving it down, up, and across, and then down, up, and across again, or across on diagonal right away, run the nations, heads are on swivels, and you just can't catch up. Colorado has an incredible defense, one of the best in the National Lacrosse League. But when they play Saskatchewan, at times, they make that defense look pedestrian. They ran that same high seal brush pick with Marty Dinsdale, Ben McIntosh, and Robert Church four or five times against Colorado. Jake Elliott mentioned it in the Vancouver game that they kept on running it against Vancouver. But it's all because of ball movement. And if you don't have ball movement, your offense is going to struggle. And that's what we're seeing with Georgia. That's what we're seeing with Vancouver and in New England. And New England is the only... 500 team that has given up more than they've scored. So, for all you coaches out there, ball movement is a huge part of a successful offense. Get your guys moving their feet. Get your guys moving the ball east to west. It's important, sure. Get the ball deep. Get D guys turning their heads. But you got to get it high and around the horn and switching it sides two or three times to really spread defenses out. Coaching moments here on the Off the Crossbar podcast. But Josh Byrne has really elevated his game in the past few weeks. So has Dane Smith. And they're starting to find their groove. When I reached out to Steve Dietrich, he was happy the way the offense is going. He'd like to see his defense tighten up. Just a little. I think every coach would like to see that. But a bright spot out of Buffalo was both goaltenders played quite well. And that's a good thing because Alex Bouquet hadn't been playing his best. Zach Higgins had come in sparingly on and off the bench and was up and down. He gave them some life in the Saskatchewan game. Help them come back to win that contest. And then when they put him in against Georgia, wasn't surprised to see him in between the pipes at home, especially after that long road trip. And he was great. He said he was settled. He didn't look nervous or shaky. And for Steve Dietrich, that's got to be a really good sign that now your goaltenders are starting, A, to get comfortable, B, give you good minutes, and now you truly have a goaltender's issue. Because David DiRuscio is eventually going to be back. Now, I'm not still not that sold on the big fish. But then again, I wasn't that sold on the tendy bear, Zach Higgins. So if they can have three goaltenders in the fold, you know Paul Day in Philadelphia is watching closely and licking his chops to get one of those guys. 
But now that Buffalo's got their goaltending kind of coming around, they've won four straight. They're top the East. They've got a game in hand on Toronto. But they're in a pretty good spot. And with Georgia and Rochester slowly falling by the wayside, we could slowly start to see some separation in the East, much like we're starting to see in the NLL West. Saskatchewan, clearly the top dog, 8-1. and one. Uh, They cruised to victory over Vancouver, 16-9. Um, again, we talk about that offense and just how good it is. Go back two weeks to the Saskatchewan-Vancouver game in Saskatchewan and watch the final, I think, like three and a half minutes or so of that game. Vancouver never gets the ball back. And in a game where Vancouver was trying to get closer to the rush to try to kind of get back into the game, the rush never even gave them a sniff. And that's called killer instinct. And that's what good teams do. And that's what Saskatchewan continues to do. They jumped out to a massive lead. They put their foot on the gas. And unlike weeks before where we've seen them sort of let off that gas and let teams back in, that wasn't happening this weekend in Vancouver. Full foot, fully on the throat, never let it off. And they ran away with things from the start. And Vancouver never had a chance. And now they are complete opposite ends of the standings. Eight and one and one and eight. Vancouver, seven games back of first, two and a half out of a playoff spot. And they're taking on Van or taking on Calgary this weekend, which could really, really hurt their chances of making the playoffs. Conversely, Calgary starting to wake up from their early season slumber as they often do. And starting to make a run. And a lot of it has to do with young Christian Del Bianco. Not considered a rookie because he's played in three seasons. Well, this is his third season that he's played in. But he is finally starting to come around. Starting to show why everyone feels like he is a bona fide number one. And there's still some holes in his game. Still some things I would like to see him tighten up. But he is becoming more and more steady, more and more reliable, and more and more confident, which is the scary thing. Because he knows he's good. But that mentality is taking a bit of a shot. Not being the number one guy and having to wait for his turn. Idly, patiently. Sometimes frustratingly having to sit by and watch. But that's just part of being a young goaltender. And now, it's it's a tough situation for a backup, especially one that's kind of being heralded as sort of an up-and-comer. Because, like I said, Christian knows he's a great goaltender. And what makes him even better is, you know, he had to sit there behind Frank Ciliano and wait his turn. Behind Mike Poulin in his first year, wait his turn. He was there supporting 
He was there being a good backup, being a good supporter of the guy who got the nod in front of him. And now that he's waited and got his turn, he's taking the ball and he's starting to run with it. I would still like to see him slow down a little bit because his quick twitch movement sometimes causes um, open gaps in his armor, I guess you could say. He does give up too many rebounds for my liking, but that'll come. He is an incredible passer of the ball. And he is starting to get the confidence not only in himself, but the guys in front of him. And that game on Saturday night, Calgary never let Colorado get momentum. And that was a huge thing for them. And that is largely due to the play of Christian Del Bianco. Calgary only had one multi-goal run all game long. And you're never going to be able to gain momentum if you can't put multiple goals in a row. They weren't doing very well in the faceoff dot. Tyler Burton was having his way with Tim Edwards. That had a large part to do with it. The offense from Calgary starting to wake up. That defense starting to tighten things up. And Kurt Miloski keeps finding ways to inspire his team. And everybody talks that Kurt has lost the room. That the guys are starting to tune him out. I don't think that that may be the case in some shape or form. But I don't think he's completely lost that room because he can fire up a locker room. He can get a group of guys inspired to get going. And with the likes of Dobie and Dixon and the Carnegie and Burton and McRae in the back end, those guys are going to get the boys rolling. And in a huge interdivisional game, they came out with probably one of their biggest wins of the year against a team that they're now trying to catch and only a game and a half back of in Colorado. And it also just so happened to let Kurt Miloski become the all-time winningest coach in Roughnecks history. And ever the humble gentleman shrugged it off, gave credit to everyone else. But you know, in a decade or so, it'll be a very special memory for Kurt Miloski. Yeah, that's it's pretty special, you know. I guess when you hang around long enough, it eventually, uh, eventually get something like that. But you know, I, I think it's it's kind of it's it's very special, you know. Not, not only is is you know a company of Chris Hall and some of the great coaches throughout the Roughneck history, but I think just being part of this organization means so much to me. And it's just a it's a, it's a real special special honor. And, and it's never been an individualistic guy, and it's something I'll probably look back later in my coaching career. But just to do it with a team that I love, a team I won a championship with, a team I believe for, is, uh, is, is just exceptional. So, you know, I'm more excited for the guys in there, but I think when it's all said and done, it'll be something special. Thank you. I like that he says thank you at the end of it. Just what a class guy Kurt Miloski is. There are great things ahead for Kurt Miloski. I have a very strong feeling that he will turn things around with that Calgary group. Hopefully, just not enough so that they beat Colorado on the way to the playoffs. Just saying. What else happened this weekend? Trying to think. Anything surprising? Oh, the Toronto game. Now, it's nothing earth-shattering. However, the loss of Tom Schreiber could play a factor for Toronto moving forward. 
For those that don't know, he's out, I believe, four to six weeks or six to eight weeks with a PCL injury in his knee. And it's not going to require surgery. Uh, uh, PCL is the post-cruciate ligament. It's um, similar to the ACL and the MCL, just not as major as the ACL. But so much so that it's going to keep him out of the lineup for a month or so. Um, A lot of that is probably precautionary. However, they did knock off Rochester, which is a big win. Good for that group to to regain that momentum, especially after the Toronto game. Get back on the winning streak. Keep pace with the Buffalo Bandits at the top of the Eastern Division. But it will be interesting to see how they replace the scoring of Schreiber. Sounds like Dan Lintner is going to get into the lineup, play some minutes for them. Uh, Lintner is a great player, very Rob Hellierish. Uh, not sure he's going to put up the numbers or be as effective as Schreiber. So I believe it'll probably be maybe a step back from the output they were getting. But they're able to fill that hole quickly, able to fill that hole internally. And the hope will be that the offense can just pick right up and continue on the pace that they're going because they have a big game against Georgia this weekend down in Georgia on Saturday. And if they can win that game, they can get right back into things with Buffalo tied atop the NLL East. One more note from this weekend. Uh, We spoke about Curtis Hodgson last week. Uh, He had his number retired this weekend by the Vancouver Stealth. Uh, Nice little ceremony before the game. Uh, Great to see the Saskatchewan Rush players out there on the bench watching. All the Vancouver Stealth players were out there with their families. And Haji is just a class guy, and I'm extremely happy for him. Uh, I know there were a bunch of old friends and family uh, that were at the game, and and what a great great night for Kurt. Um, It was uh, an organization that he gave everything to and still does especially off the floor with the Junior Stealth program. He does a wonderful job with that and couldn't be happier for a nicer guy. So once again, just wanted to congratulate Curtis Hodgson on having his number six retired to the rafters of the LEC, becoming the first Stealth player to have his number retired. The Hodgson ceremony coupled with the Saskatchewan Rush playing in town who are very BC heavy, allowed the Stealth to have a 4,100 attendance number, one of their best since being in the LEC. But the two crowds in Rochester and Georgia were the ones that really scare me. Rochester had just over 5,400 people in attendance. Georgia reportedly had just under 3,200. I didn't see 3,200 people there. Now, was I there? No. But as they often do on the Georgia broadcast, they show the end zone cam that shows three quarters of the arena. That would have been a tough 3,000. And I know the commissioner, who we're going to hear some clips from in a minute, is really 
happy with his markets. I think there has to be some concern in some markets. Georgia isn't panning out like he thought it would. Rochester has been on a steady decline for three or four years now. Back in the early 2000s, they were putting 9,000 in the BCA. And that number has continually dropped. And it was one of the sparsest crowds I had ever seen. And now that we're halfway through the season and with expansion coming and more expansion coming, and I know he doesn't want to use the R word and move teams, but maybe it's something that needs to be thought about in some markets. Because if you turn on a game of the week and there's nobody there, that's a tough sell. So hopefully those things get turned around because I just don't like turning on games and seeing empty arenas. It makes me laugh every time I see a baseball game and I know they play 182 trillion games a year. And so oftentimes that's why ballparks are so empty. But it doesn't matter. For the athlete's sake, because nobody wants to play in front of empty arenas, just takes all the fun out of it. So fingers crossed that things turn around in some markets and those teams start to get some wins and the fans start to come out a little bit more because it's just tough watching empty arenas out there. So let's kind of stay on that track. Let's let's hear some thoughts from the commissioner. Uh, as mentioned, he was on a podcast earlier in the week uh, with the folks from Sports Business Radio. Um, they discussed a lot of topics, uh, starting with uh, Nick's tenure in the MLS, uh, moving towards the National Cross League, and we'll hear four different clips from him, uh, ranging from full contracts to expansion, um, digital, and things like that. So uh, the first comment uh, in the conversation was something that I know the players are very invested in, and that is full-time contracts. The PLPA and the National Lacrosse League, I know for a fact, are trying to work this out, trying to find a way for the players to keep up the pace with the growth of the league because that is something that needs to be done with the lengthening of the season and the prospect of more games the players want to feel like they are rightfully compensated and that their their pay scale is growing with the league so the question comes around of who pays the players nick dissects that uh, the teams pay the players based on individually signed contracts. And then he goes into the thoughts of moving towards full-time NLL contracts. Um, our players are um, still on a part-time basis. So they, they'll work the six months of the year. Uh, and then many of them have other lacrosse businesses. There are, many of them are coaches and uh, supplementing their income. Uh, 
with other lacrosse business and others outside of lacrosse. We, um, we've undertaken a study right now to manage our growth to see at what point we start signing players out of college to full-time contracts. So I formed an ad hoc committee of owners to study that, to study two things, to study um, signing our players to full-time year-round contracts um, as they come out of school, and then increasing the number of games that we play in our league. Because as we bring on more teams in our league, we'll need to play more games, and that'll, that'll really require us to have full-time athletes. If you're a National Lacrosse League player, or especially early in your career, or you're a kid in college that's thinking about playing in the National Lacrosse League, that should be music to your ears. Because that is something that every lacrosse player since the dawn of time has been hoping for. Full-time status. And you can guarantee that if this team gets to where Nick Sakevich wants, which is 14 to 16 teams, I'll play you that clip momentarily. We all kind of know that. But if this league is going to get to 14 to 16 teams and... The schedule is going to continue to get longer. The players are going to have to be paid full-time wages. And I don't know how quickly the number will jump. But if future franchises begin to pay $5 million, upwards of $5 million, more than $5 million depending on the market, then the hope is that there will be some money coming in for the players. So that is a good sign that the league it truly is looking into full-time contracts for players. Now, another way that money can come in, and it's one of the ways that NBA, NHL, MLB are so successful, is TV revenue. Now, we all know that The commissioner is a big fan of his digital-first focus in the OTT platform and NLL TV and NLL productions and such. Uh, We've got Twitter games. We've got Facebook Live with Relax. Well, everybody seems to understand that that's the way that the commissioner is going, but always asks, what's up with TV? Is there going to be TV somewhere down the line? Well, he touched on that. He spoke of it, and earlier this week, the Rochester Nighthawks announced that they'll have, uh, I believe, four of their remaining home games uh, broadcast on local TV. That's a good sign. Could it be a sign of things to come? Our fan base is um, not subscribing to cable, uh, and they're on the go, uh, and they want to watch lacrosse, and they want to watch the best lacrosse in the world, whether it's on their mobile phone, a computer screen, or a big screen uh, in their home. They, they want to watch it anytime, anywhere. So that's why the digital strategy is a very smart one for us. And we're going to continue to invest. And I think in the next probably 60 days, maybe less, you're going to see some big distribution announcements with some big partners that see what we see, a very underserved lacrosse audience hungry for, uh, for lacrosse on, uh, on digital. That last part. Hungry for lacrosse on digital. So with announcements coming in 60 days, 
with big broadcasters? What I truly, I, I have no idea. What could that possibly mean? I'm he has me peaked. I'm very interested to see what, what this announcement and what these broadcast partners do and who they are. Because truth be told, I still subscribe to digital cable. Or yeah, to cable. Is it digital cable? Just cable. No, I have did I don't know. I have cable. I'm old school. I have Shawbox. I like watching my regular television. I don't have a Cody box. I don't do Roku or any of that stuff. I have NLL TV only for lacrosse. I don't subscribe to Dazen or anything else. So I would like to see the National Lacrosse League on TV. As a Canadian, I would love to be able to turn on TSN or Sportsnet and find a lacrosse game. We've done it before. So I, I'm I'm truly intrigued by what these announcements will be in the next coming days. Uh, we spoke about expansion. Well, that conversation sort of came up. He doesn't. He he spoke of teams. He said he is communicating with many many markets. But in this next clip is basically where he sees the league in five years, and this is where he starts to talk about. 14 to 16 teams, but he even goes further and sort of an idea of what he sees the future looking like. I think you'll you'll see over the next five years us grow to a 14 to 16 team league, um, and then over the next decade grow beyond that. 16 is kind of a magic number for us in terms of scale and and size in the U.S. You know, we'll we'll look to have six or seven teams in Canada, and we'll look to be 20 to 24 teams in the U.S. someday. We think that can get accomplished over the next decade. But over the next five, I think we're going to be very focused on our key strategies, digital media, growing NLL TV, growing our relevance, and getting to 14 to 16 teams. So in a decade, by 2028, Nick Sakevich sees the National Lacrosse League as a possible... 30 to 32 team league. That's incredible. Will it ever get there? I don't know. I would love to see it. And if this is the vision that the National Cross League is taking, I'm all for it. As long as we don't jump too high too far, and as long as we don't get too big too fast. Baby steps. Simple solutions, find the right owners. I know that is one of his big things, right owners, and I like that. you got to have the right owners. And then once owners are in place, and now this is where Steve Govett is working his magic, is trying to find the people to run your team. We all know it's going to be Paul Day, who is head coach and general manager in Philadelphia. And I think many of us are patiently waiting to see what Steve Govett does. And that's a conversation for another day. But I've spoken to Steve uh, quite a bit. He has a list. It's getting shorter by the week. And there are some very interesting names on it. 
and we'll just have to wait and see. He doesn't have a timetable. He's not pressed to get a name out there anytime soon. But it's a decision that I'm very keen on watching and waiting for. Because I, I, I'm, I'm truly interested to watch how this San Diego team develops. But again, another story, another day. Uh, the final comment I'm going to play for you uh, of this interview that the commissioner had with Sports Business Radio uh, or the Sports Business Podcast was when the conversation came towards the relationship between the NLL and the MLL and if there will ever be a handshake mutual agreement for these two leagues to coexist. Um, I, cer- I certainly hope that there's an opportunity to work with the, uh, the, the outdoor league. You know, we, we believe that uh, the young lacrosse fan growing up today is playing both outdoors and indoors. And, um, you know, we think that there's an opportunity for that fan to not have to choose between the two, but to participate in both long term. Um, so I know they have a new commissioner over there. I know they're, you know, getting their house in order a bit. And um, hopefully uh, when they do, we can sit back down again. Uh, you know, when I first became commissioner, I reached out to them to uh, see how we could work together. Um, but nothing really came of it. Uh, I think they were in transition with leadership change. And then they, they recently announced um, uh, a new commissioner. So I'm hoping to get together with him very soon and talk about how we can work together to, to expand the game and grow it. One day, that is the hope that we can run one league into another, have no overlap, and let the best players in the world play both leagues. Because it can only help both leagues survive and strive if guys aren't having to pick and choose. So, uh, nice little interview there with the commissioner. Uh, I hope those sort of four hot spots uh, maybe shed some light on a few things. Again, nothing really groundbreaking. Uh, many things that we knew, just the commissioner kind of elaborating on some thoughts and going a little deeper into some of his thinking. You may have heard me mention a couple times, we are at the halfway point of the National Lacrosse League season. We've played 41 of a possible 81. And so let's do some awards. Now, I can honestly say that I'm not sure I've gotten a preseason award correct before, maybe once or twice. But a midway awards, I don't think I've ever been close. But let's just have some fun with it. If you want to give me your MVP, goalie, rookie of the year, transition player, defensive player, coach, GM, send them my way, teddy.jenner at gmail.com or at Twitter or on Twitter at off the crossbar. Let's start with general general manager. I'm going to go with a guy who's made some good trades, uh, benefited from a good draft, and has worked free agency and worked the wires and constructed a team that started to rebound. And that's Steve Dietrich in Buffalo. Uh, He has done an excellent job uh, retooling an offense, trades out Ryan Banesh, brings in 
Josh Byrne, brings in Jordan Durston, brings in Callum Crawford, brings in uh, Alex Bouquet, cuts some weight in David Brock and Billy D. Smith, lets his D get a little younger, and that team is starting to play to its potential. And I think Steve Dietrich has done a wonderful job in Buffalo and truly thinks uh, that he has done a good enough job to be general manager of the year if the season ended right now. Coach of the year, not sure there is much choice. Uh, I think you'll probably get, again, if if it was right now, accordingly might get a vote or two. But I think hands down, it's Derek Keenan. The guy just has his team playing at another level. His GM does a pretty good job for him in not changing his roster too much. Uh, that ro- roster never really takes a step back. They only get better. Um, so I think Derek has benefited from having a really good GM working above him, giving him a quality team to work with. But you still have to get that team to play as such. Uh, he has two great assistants in Jimmy Quinlan and Jeff McComb who do wonders for him at either end of the bench. Uh, but Derek Keenan really understands his group and knows how to get them playing um, at a better level really each week. I'm going to go transition player of the year first. And I'm going to give it, I, I really want to see Joey Capito win it. I truly think he's due for another one because he continues to play incredible transition for the Colorado Mammoth and scores big goals. He's 1A. The other guy is going to be Zach Courier in Calgary. Uh, Everyone is going to have him up there in the rookie of the year ranks, as do I. But I think that if he doesn't win rookie of the year, he's still definitely in contention for transition player of the year. And he has come a long way in taking his game in just a few short months to see where it was at the start of the year, to see where it is now, he's he's gotten better, which is crazy. Because when he came in the league, he took the world by storm. And he's been a steady face-off man, a steady two-way guy, great loose balls in transition, uh, definitely going to be a transition star for his entire career. And if he keeps going the way he's going, it's going to be a race between him, Capito, and Chris Corbeil if teams consider Chris Corbeil a transition guy because I don't think he's listed as a D guy, so he's not in my three H's for top D guy of the year, and it's between Hope, Hossack, and Latrell Harris. And Latrell Harris has kind of come out of nowhere in just a year to become one of the Rock's best D guys. We all know what Graham Hossack can do in the back end. He is just an absolute menace, terrorizing offensive players to the floor, giving them nightmares. But Robert Hope is just an incredible, steady presence on the back end for Colorado. Uh, with the losses of Cam Holding and Dan Coates, more pressure was put on Hope's 6'5 shoulders, and he has worn it like a C on his chest, and he has done a fabulous job. So Robert Hope is my midway defensive player of the year. Rookie of the year, uh, we spoke of Josh Byrne uh, much at the start of this podcast, and he is just continuing to impress Uh, The flashy pick is Josh Byrne. The sexy pick is Josh Byrne. Obviously, Zach Curry will get some nods. Jake Withers might get a tick or two here and there as the season goes on. Uh, But just watching Josh Byrne the last three or four weeks 
uh, to see him progress, to see him mature, to see his game evolve uh, has been a real treat. And the dive has become an art form for Josh Byrne. And he is taking it to another level and becoming a one-on-one guy that just can't be stopped. And if you don't have backside help, it's a 95% chance it's going in the back of your net. My goaltender and MVP of the year midway through the season are the exact same person, and that's Evan Kirk. Uh, he's led his team to an 8-1 in one record. He leads the National Lacrosse League with seven wins, second in the NLL with uh, 10.95 goals against average, fourth in the NLL with save percentage, but those two are kind of skewed because Ziggins, Ziggins, I like that, Ziggins. Zach Higgins and Christiel Bianco have played less minutes, but their numbers are a touch higher just because. But Evan Kirk, MVP, goalie of the year as we go through the midway point. So those are my awards. You could probably disagree with them all you want. Again, email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Twitter me at off the crossbar. Let me know. MVP, goalie, rookie, transition, D, coach, GM, who you got and where I went wrong. That's just that. Um, The dive versus the jump. Everybody knows the dive, you are parallel to the ground. The jump, you are perpendicular to the ground. Upright, vertical, straight up and down, moving left to right from the goaltender, but still able to go far side, short side, high, low, bouncer, five hole, whatever you want. It has become more impressive than ever, and with teams kind of focusing on the alley-oop dunk where the shooter from out high gets the goaltender to stand on top of the crease, they fire a pass to a guy who's standing behind the net and he just reaches around and dunks it. That's an art. I get it. I'm okay with it. I'm cool with it. Goaltenders, you got to watch your backside. That's life. But when players are getting ISO'd and just torching D guys, and then there's no backside help and they're free to launch themselves vertical, left to right, goaltenders are having fits with this. And I truly don't know the best way to stop somebody that way. I think Zach Higgins might have had attacked where he just, I think it was Lyle Thompson went diving, jumping through his crease, took off, Tried to go far side, and Zach Higgins just kind of scarecrowed, put his arms across the crossbar, and said, okay, if you're going to beat me, try and beat me. But I just don't know if there's one true way to beat that because, as we talked about at the start, guys being able to reach far side and then still have the ability and the hang time, Michael Jordan, to bring their arms back across their body and tuck it short side takes such dexterity and composure that goaltenders can't react in time. And I wonder how long it's going to take before we get to see a Tim Thomas and see a goaltender lunge out at a player jumping through the crease like that. Because I know some goaltenders started to take offense when players were diving And a lot of the dives were going directly at the goaltenders and goalies were getting hit more. So we started to see goaltenders initiate the contact. Dallas, Cosmo, Patty Campbell would do it. Steve Dietrich definitely did it. 
that they would almost step into the guy diving across the crease to initiate the contact to try to get a call, but it also put them in harm's way doing that. The jump doesn't necessarily put goaltenders in harm's way because the player is not coming directly at them unless they get pushed from behind. But we still could see a goaltender, as soon as that guy starts to jump, just come out and body check a guy. Probably not going to happen because they're more concerned about a stick. But if a game's out of hand and a goalie gets frustrated, you could see it. But just keep an eye on how more frequently you're seeing guys jump than they are diving. Because not only does diving hurt and blow up your knees, it completely cuts down your angle. So by doing the jump, you give yourself a ton of more room. And I like it. I wish I would have done that more. The jump, not the dive. Uh, Before we get out of here, let's skip over to uh, the WLA. A couple tidbits of information that come out of the West this past week. Obviously, the WLA draft that went down on Wednesday is the big news. Uh, First pick, as mentioned, Connor Robinson, no surprise. All-time leading scorer in U.S. Junior Salmon Belly's history. Went number one overall to the Langley Thunder. And then things kind of hit a bit of a question mark. As the Coquitlam Adnax took Poco's Sam DeGroot second overall, which kind of left everybody scratching their heads because we all thought that they'd take Drew Belgrave. And then that would lead Nanaimo to decide if they really wanted to draft Cole Pickup. Well... With DeGroote going to Coquitlam, the Timmermans felt that they were going to take the NLL-ready and NLL-experienced Drew Belgrave, third overall. And when they took Belgrave, Chris Welch, the Victoria Shamrocks, wasted no time, already had the pick written. We'll take Cole Pickup, our own Victoria boy, fourth overall. Uh, the rest of the first round, Eli Salama, Andrew Glant, and Preston Lupel, two Thunder picks sandwiching another Adnac pick rounded out your first round. And I know I'm a Victoria guy, and everyone will see me as a bit of a homer. I'm okay with it sometimes. But just looking at the draft, I really think Victoria got the best out of it. Connor Robinson, going to be an absolute star. Langley couldn't go wrong with that pick. They knew that that was going to be their pick all along. But for Victoria to get pickup at four, Danny Smith at nine, Zach Christensen at 25, Alec Molander at 18. Those are solid pickups for Victoria. And those are three, maybe four guys that can step into the lineup right away. Danny Smith, we all remember what he did in the playoffs last year, Victoria. Uh, He is already a fan favorite. He's going to be a day one starter for Bob Hayes. Zach Christensen, once he comes back from college, uh, he's Walt's kid. Um, He has turned into a fantastic little D guy. Uh, He's not actually that little. He's a lot bigger than Danny Smith. And and Zach, once once Zach gets some true meat on his bones um, and fills out, he's going to be awesome. And we all know what Cole Pickup can do. If Victoria can get him for half a season uh, during the regular season, that's great. We all know he's probably going to have to be leaving to go back to school at times. But getting him in the fold and keeping him in Victoria was the biggest thing. So um, other people may think their team won. I truly think Victoria getting pickup and Smith 1-2 in the first two rounds uh, was absolutely um, hugely important for them. 
uh, especially going into a non-man cup year, uh, especially now knowing that Corey Small will not be back with the Victoria Shamrocks. That is the other piece of WLA News, and that just came out uh, moments before I came into the studio. Uh, Corey Small going to be moving back to Ontario. I believe his rights are held by KW. Whether he's going to play for them or not, still yet to be determined whether they trade his rights. Who knows? Wouldn't be wouldn't surprise me at all to see KW ship Smallsy to Peterborough or Six Nations. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But with the loss of Corey Small, that leaves some holes on the left side. Uh, Reese Dutch is getting older. Don't know how many years he has left. There are talks that a lot of the older guys for the Shamrocks are going to take a summer off. And again, with it being a Eastern Man Cup, that's often the case. And I doubt you're going to see Victoria spend a whole lot. Probably won't see a lot of Western teams spend a whole lot or go out looking for guys outside of BC. Maybe the odd Alberta guy. Maybe the odd Ontario guy. But I think teams are going to try to stay close to home and build the fort. And... A lot of these teams picked up a lot of depth. It may not have been the most talented graduating class, but there were some really good talent that will make differences on some of these weaker teams. And for the Shamrocks, for the Sambellies, for the Berards, for the Lakers, you know, they filled holes. And they did the best they could. New West didn't pick until the third round. So it'll be interesting. It's going to be a fun year out in the West. Um, Like I said, I don't think you're going to see um, a lot of top-end talent being imported in. I think teams will just shore up what they got, see what they have for a year, and then come 2019 when the man comes back West, that's when you'll see teams make a push. So uh, that's a bit of a recap from the WLA and, of course, the news that Corey Small has decided to head back east and will no longer be a member of the Victoria Shamrocks. That's going to do it. I'm getting out of here. That's a lot of talking by myself for a whole hour. We're going to have some guests next week, I guarantee it. But until then, there are four games on the schedule this weekend. Starts Friday, Vancouver at Calgary. That is a massive Massive games for both those clubs. Toronto versus Georgia. Saskatchewan at Rochester. Those games are Saturday and Sunday, February 18th. The Mammoth take on the Black Wolves from the casino. My name is Teddy Jenner. At Off the Crossbar on Twitter. Teddy.Jenner at gmail.com is the email. Let me know your mid-season award winners. That'll do it. For another week, I'm out of here. Until next time, be excellent to each other.